Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. And if you like the show to the point that you'd pay to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one now available for order in our online store at autofocuslit.com books. This is perhaps the best way to support us right now. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Our episode of The Lives of Writers today is hosted by Jeff Alessandrelli. Jeff Alessandrelli is the author of several books, including the poetry collection, Fur Not Light. He is also the director and co-editor of the Small Presses, Phonograph Editions, and Bunny Press. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Jeff in conversation with Joshua James Amberson. Joshua James Amberson is the author of Staring Contest, Essays About Eyes, How to Forget Almost Everything, a Novel, a series of chapbooks on Two Plum Press, and the long-running Basic Paper Airplane Zine series. He lives in Portland, Oregon, where he runs the Antiquated Future online variety store and record label. All right, let's get to it. This is Jeff Ellisandrelli's conversation with Joshua James Amberson. When I'm home, I, you know, the dog wakes me up early. I'm not a morning person, but she's getting old and can really only hold it five or six hours now. So um, so I go to bed late and then wake up early whenever she wakes me up. And um, so I guess that's part of my routine. But I don't really have a writing routine, a creative practice right now. I'm working on some things, but... Um, so much of what I need to do is around around in the writing realm is either doing these big freelance editing jobs for other people or something around the my essay question that came out in May. So it feels you know, I mean, I've talked to some people that they're like, oh, yeah, when you're promoting a book, you're not really writing something new. Um, but I want to be. And I have a couple projects in the early stages right now, and I really want to be working on those. But there's a lot of other things that are taking priority before having at least the mental space to do that. So I don't Yeah, I don't think I have much routine now and you live in portland but you're from 
where in Washington State? You're up just outside the town of Snohomish, which is northeast of Seattle, about um, 40 miles-ish. And have you, you've always lived in the Pacific Northwest. Always, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I've had small extended stays in a few places, but um, I haven't really had a big desire to move outside of the Northwest. And I think, yeah, I grew up with a pretty big, close-knit family where when I talk about my family, it's not just a, a sort of nuclear family arrangement. It's like, you know, I was kind of, um, in the, I, I think the best possible way passed around between aunts and uncles and cousins and, you know, not living with them, but, you know, um, being, spending a significant amount of time with each of my family members. And, so, so when I say my family, I'm speaking about, you know, 25 people rather than four people or something, but they all live all along I-5, basically off I-5 from Seattle to Blaine at the Canadian border. So they're all in a pretty close distance to each other and most of them have not moved for a significant amount of time you know maybe maybe just a little bit here and there and um so as far as they're concerned i'm pretty far away you know like i'm like i'm getting wild moving down to portland um so i think there's something there where obviously a lot of people have families that have never left their hometown and they end up transcending that and, you know, moving outside the area and uh, moving elsewhere in the world. And but for me, it's just, uh, I just, there's kind of a magnet that keeps me always pretty close to where I grew up. I mean, Portland to Snohomish is three hours. It depends since it's, traffic is so bad on that stretch. But um, if I drive... Uh, this is actually something I used to do more often, but now I I drive at night less or try to. And um, but I would leave late at night and drive whenever I was going up to visit my family, and I could do it in like a little over three or three and a half. But if I'm driving at any other time of day, it's more like four to five. So. I mean, you're, yeah, you like you said, you're a little bit away. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a dedication to go up. And you are a writer, you run a label, you are a musician. I don't know if you're actively a musician now, but I mean, you, you, you've been in bands. And I mean, out of those 25, I mean, that's a big extended family. Did from a young age, the like arts get instilled in you? Or how did that kind of work? Well, I'll say it's not, even though everyone in my family is really supportive of at least the idea of the arts, you know, like that no one thinks that's uh, 
something not to be appreciated. There's not, um, it's not a big artist family, I'll say. And so there was really just one person, which is my uncle or one of my uncles who was in my preteen years. I hung out with him pretty much every day. Um, he, he was and is a musician and, um, and at the time he played, he did like a solo act in bars and clubs and stuff where this was, this was in the eighties and early nineties. So he was like a keyboard and a drum machine and would do covers and bars and stuff. And so he played several nights a week and, uh, but that meant his days were free. And so I lived part-time or half-time at my grandparents and he would just come and hang out with me after I got out of school because everyone was busy. And so, um, and he wasn't and, and it was great. And I think that's, if I didn't have that as an example of, one possible artist life or you know what it what a the life of an artist could look like then i don't think i would have ever attempted it or attempted something so risky i guess um but so uh, i mean you could look at that as uh, a good thing or a bad thing. I look at it as a good thing. <laughs> I I could may be probably more financially stable if I had chosen a different path, um, or if I hadn't have had that example. But I don't think I would be as fulfilled if I hadn't gone down sort of different life path but yeah i think i think his example is really formative and i um i didn't plan to end up in a life that looked like his but i sort of did it's different but it but i did so Hmm. now did he actually teach you like chords or was it more like kind of subliminal no, I wasn't really, I lo- I've always loved music, but in my preteen years, I was so over, I, just sports had a hold on me in this way that I couldn't see outside of it. And um, I don't think he really ever tried to to really give me lessons or anything. Maybe here and there, he would have me play it. He'd, He's a, he's a pianist and, you know, so he would, you know, I think sometimes we would sit down at the piano, but, um, but I do remember that he and my mom signed me up for piano lessons when I was in elementary school and I went to one and it's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I just kind of put my foot down and I was just, I was I wasn't into it. I was pretty shy and it was a group piano lesson thing where you're playing in front of other people. So oh. I think that was an issue for me for one. And 
also it just felt like a distraction that was so especially baseball I was really into baseball at the time and um yeah I was a pitcher in little league and I practiced pitching every day you know it's just this thing that was totally consumed by and and I wasn't a very stubborn kid either but so it was sort of a rare thing for me to put my foot down and be like I'm not doing that but I went yeah after that one piano lesson my mom picked me up just like how was it It great and I was like I'm not going back I'm not doing it and (laughs) and yeah I I so regret that I would be a better I I hopefully be a better musician now if I had and um, when I was playing music more regularly um, or more seriously, I I did I did notice that all my friends who were really good started started young, and they usually started with piano because it it gives so many fundamentals um, that let you, lets you go wherever you know that um yeah a lot of drummers started with piano i noticed because it's so rhythmic and um you just you just kind of understand it a little better than you know when i was a teenager and started on guitar i i I didn't have that the perspective i would have had if i had understood how a piano keyboard worked and um yeah yeah and so that's that's a um bit of a regret for me and and i am playing music again after kind of a long break i'm playing in a a, a little band yeah just playing bass in a band um with with the writer justin hawking you know Justin and um yeah and it's been really fun really fun we've been doing that for about a year now and um yeah that, that's one thing we did this summer we we recorded we tried to record our first EP we we had a studio set up a person who runs a studio offered to record us for free and in San Francisco and then we decided to cancel the trip. It felt too big and like too much and just do it ourselves. So we spent, uh, we've, we spent some time this summer trying to set up a studio in Justin's basement. And so that's, that's been kind of fun. So when was the, cause you, you started out playing more music and then it seems like you gradually transitioned to, writing more while also I guess running a label and I guess a a zine distribution when how did that kind of transformation take place well it started with writing actually where when I was in my late teens early 20s uh, I started what we were calling a a small press, but it was 
it was pretty, pretty DIY. Um, and we're mostly publishing poetry, but also published comics and sort of handmade art books and graffiti zines and various things. And, um, and that was in Olympia, Washington. And we're pretty active for maybe as many as five years. And then when that sort of dissolved is when, for one, I started writing prose. I started the zine series I still do today, Basic Paper Airplane. Um, that, that was 2005 when I started that. And yeah, and I just didn't really look back. Of course, I still love poetry, but I don't, I don't write it anymore. And so that, that was a big change for me. And then also, you know, I spent, not that I wasn't having fun or living a life that was pretty typical for an early 20s party life, but it was a lot of responsibility to run a press. I mean, we, we were a nonprofit. We, you know, I, I don't know why. And we did all the paperwork for that. We never, <laughs> we never got uh, grants or anything, but at least people that gave donations could have a tax write off. I don't know. You know, we, we just thought that was the thing that we needed to do. And so, um, but it was just a lot of responsibility for something that I was doing from, 19 to 24 or something and so I was like I'm not going to do this for a while and it's around that time I started playing in bands I played in a band a punk band in high school and I just I, I wasn't that good and so when high school ended and that band ended I I just felt like I was mostly done playing music and um but then I started playing and writing songs and playing in other people's bands and Olympia just has such a has always and will always have a really rich music scene and so it's it's just kind of infectious when you're there it's it's and it's a real DIY scene where you know, people who have just started playing an instrument are playing shows within, a, you know, sometimes a few months of just starting to play an instrument for the first time or something. And that's really accepted there and encouraged. And so I was like, well, I, you know, I do know how to play guitar. And, and I, and it was just that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've written some songs before, but it was the first time that songs were kind of coming out of me in a way that I wasn't forcing it to happen. And um, so I just was like, oh, I need to follow this out and to see where this leads. And so I played in bands for several years and went on some tours and, um, and yeah, but then it, it was, 
I kind of came to a similar conclusion that I did after high school, which was like, well, this doesn't really come that naturally to me. It's, I love doing it, but it, it's, it's difficult. You know, I'm not a natural musician. And so, um, it's just, it didn't feel like a life path. And I had been writing through all that, but the music had been sort of, um, overshadowing the writing I was doing. And, and at some point that balance or imbalance started to feel bad. I was always guilty, feeling guilty about the writing projects that I wasn't getting done because I always had a writing project and, um, and then, and that's about the time I moved to Portland. I'd almost moved here a half dozen times in the years prior to that, but I, um, yeah, it wasn't until end of 2012, early 2013 that I actually moved here and, um, and I moved here specifically for the writing community because there are plenty of great writers in Olympia, but, um, it's just, it's a, it's a transient place, you know, even, even people who are a little older are moving and coming back. And, um, you know, I had a writing group that had been going for years and it was, it was down, it had gone from a dozen people to, there were three of us remaining. And I don't know, I loved that group, but it just felt sad. I was like, wow, it's really hard to have a writing community here. And so, um, and I already had some friends in the writing community here. And so I, yeah, I moved down and right away, it just felt like that was the right move. And I was, um, you know, it wasn't, like everything just fell into place in that moment but um but yeah i met a lot of great writers and got involved in all sorts of different communities revolving around writing and um yeah and that that's the path i've been on for the last 10 11 years is um yeah, just kind of embracing that and going all the different places that leads. It's interesting too, though, that you, I mean, a lot of writers in, I think, good and also bad ways are very self-involved and they are not interested in, I guess, collective concerns unless it kind of directly involves their benefit. But I mean, you started out as a publisher of like a nonprofit poetry press. You were in bands, which are collective. It wasn't like you were doing solo shows wherever. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, why? Is that something that you just kind of always felt that you were part of a bigger ecosystem? I mean, you were writing your own poetry. Did you publish that too? Or how did it kind of like work? Because I, I, you know, 
a lot of writers, they're just like, yeah, I got this published. I'm working on the next thing. And they never think of kind of, frankly, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're concerned with their friends publishing histories, but they don't have any interest. And this isn't everyone, obviously. We know we, you and I both yeah. are publishers. We both do a lot of things. But there are a lot of writers who like they have no interest in anything other than that's coming from their own pen, you know, or, or what have you. I mean, was that something that, yeah. how did that come about for you? Yeah, it has always been something that felt, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm choosing my words here. But first I want to say essential and, and also natural too. I just feel like that's part of what, my job is is you know it on earth is to at least at least help make connections between people if not have a hand in um you know if whatever it may be a book and album and art project and an event you know something coming to life um and yeah, that that just feels it just feels good to be to be able to offer that to artists that I I believe in and and want to work with and um yeah, and sometimes I think about that the because there's there's a way in which my own work suffers because I'm pulled in a lot of different directions at any given time. Um, but, you know, it's also, I've been doing so many, what, what for me is a lot of events around this most recent book and a lot of, in conversation events or interviews and things and um and you know i'm i'm someone who always gets down on myself about not doing not doing more and but then talking about how how much work went into this book um even even just not even just on it at the prose or line level, but on the research level too, where you know there are a lot of lines in the book that were just hours and hours and of research for a single line in the book, and you know when people ask these questions that I have to say it, it's a little it's almost a little embarrassing, you know. <laughs> how um, some of the rabbit holes that went down just just to get a single line. And, and so when I look at it that way, I think, I think the events are giving me perspective in a lot of different ways and some, some positive, some negative, some just, just perspective, just neutral perspective. Um, but that has been, it has been good for, for the part of me that the the voice inside that sometimes says, "Oh, you should be more selfish. You should be more concerned with your own work. You should 
not be putting that energy toward other people's work. You should always be, right? which, you know, it's a voice I've never listened to. Um, you know, I mean, not, not, there are periods of time where I'm finishing a book or something that I, I have to listen to that voice. It's essential, but, um, but I haven't listened to that voice for <laughs> extended periods of time, I guess. And, um, yeah, but it's kind of calmed me where I was like, well, I'm still able to get the work in, you know, I, it's not, I don't feel like there's, there's very little within the, this essay collection that I feel I, I mean, there's, there's always more say research to be done and there's always, um, different ways of, of constructing a line and I'm recording the audiobook right now, which I, have you recorded an audiobook before for any of yours? No, no, I haven't. It's, it's interesting. This is my first time doing it and it's, it makes me want to edit everything, right? Uh, so, I mean, obviously, there's there's more I could be could do, but there's not. Um, so sometimes I've been a little hard on myself in that process. But um, the audiobook's going to live on the web press website or on like uh, Audible. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, Perfect Day Publishing. The, the press it came out with doesn't use Amazon. And since Audible is owned by Amazon, that um, that it won't be an Audible book, but um, it'll be available through other places. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that should be um, sometime in September, October, I think. It'll, it'll be done, hopefully. Um, we're moving fairly quickly through it. Uh, yeah i mean it's just like doing a reading you know where you're you read and you're like uh this i don't <laughs> you, yeah. you right before you read you're like okay i have everything i'm reading i know for a long time and then you're like actually reading and you're like this sucks or you're like i want to change everything yeah yeah so that's happening a little bit but it's also making me realize that okay a lot of work went into this i don't feel like this work suffered that at least that much because I've been helping other people and and there's the argument or the case that working on other projects makes you see your own work so much clearer and and for me gives me a better idea of what I want to do and don't want to do mm -hmm. right and so um and especially since it's really just been in the last year that I've had book length books come out, you know, before it had been chapbook and scene sized books or projects. And, um, yeah. And just really thinking in the long form or, um, w what I have been calling the short, the short long form because I kind of like books to be 
a little compact and actually um, what I'm going to be working, what I'm working on now or next is um, I'm like, I want to be a little, even a little tighter than these last couple books that came out, even though they weren't super long. I just like a short book, but, um, but just teaching, just getting a lesson and working in the long form. Um, for me, nothing, you know, I could read as many, as many novels and interlinked essay collections and memoirs and, you know, and it, it wouldn't, it, that doesn't give me the same instruction as getting deep into someone else's book and seeing just how it operates and, and how it moves. You know, I, I really, it's, that's something, you know, I mean, writers, creative people in general just kind of get hooked on words and and movement movement on the page is one that's i've that is i've just really gotten hooked on especially um especially when doing so much editing and manuscript consultation stuff where it's just i just talk a lot end up talking a lot about movement and how places where things feel like they're they're moving in a uh interesting way in places where things feel a little stuck or muddy and um yeah so i i don't know i just i feel like there's a case that there's um you know that that there's a an education in in not focusing on your own stuff i i think i would be a much worse writer if i never if I didn't work on all these other projects. Yeah, the new book, I mean, I've read chat books by you before. Um, it's Staring Contest Essays About Eyes. So it has a very kind of interesting premise. Because, I mean, you have the condition P PXE. Mm -hmm. And what does that stand for? Pseudoxanthoma elasticum. And how would you describe that to folks who haven't read this the, the book yet? Yeah, well, I write about this a little bit in the book and that I, for a shorthand, I, I tell people it's an eye condition because for me it's mostly affected my retinas and cause um, regular retinal hemorrhaging and which um, sounds intense retinal hemorrhaging <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. like yeah so define that like what does that mean yeah well so but PXE is is a lot broader than that and so that's my shorthand that's the thing even now and i'd be like if i'm introducing the book in some way or before giving a reading i'll 
oftentimes I read off the off the narrative line of my quote-unquote eye condition, but I'll introduce the book by saying, well, this, this is in part a book about having a rare eye condition. But yeah, I no longer say that to other people who have PXC or in the, that PXC community because it's um it's a uh, it's like a, a cellular condition it affects um it's a calcification of tissue in the body so some people have um leg issues and where blood vessels get constricted by this calcification and um have trouble with walking or movement in general and some people have um have gastrointestinal issues caused by pxc i i have crohn's so i do have gi issues but i i don't have them because of pxc at least not knowingly or in a way that people that that could be uh, diagnosed and um so it affects people in a pretty wide variety of ways and not everyone though everyone has the symptom in the eye on the retinas um not everybody has issues because of that or at least doesn't have issues because of that until later in life and so if there's a, a unique part of my story or that the memoir thread of the collection it's that i started having retinal hemorrhages so young where i was in my 20s rather than say in my 60s or 70s which is when a lot of people with pxc might have those hemorrhages for the first time and um yeah and so um yeah it's been about um almost 15 years now that i've 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 was born with the condition it's a genetic condition um and it was diagnosed when i was in my early teens but and i had some minor problems with it in my late teens but it wasn't really until my mid-20s that i had to actually i had my first hemorrhage and i had to take it seriously for the first time really and uh, and so, yeah, part of, part of that is, um, the memoir thread of the book is, um, or at least the kind of the main memoir thread is about, uh, navigating the condition over the last decade plus. And, um, yeah, so, so I think that's, that's the in-depth answer, but I often, um, yeah, just just describe it as as a retinal condition that um, oftentimes I'll say that causes hemorrhaging, but it it really it's that it sets up the potential for hemorrhaging, and for me the potential was actualized a lot earlier than for other people. And to combat the hemorrhaging, you get injections, right? Yeah. And like what, you know, at least a portion of the book is kind of talking about 
what these are and how they impact you. Like, so, I mean, I guess just for folks listening, like, I mean, is it a needle essentially in your eye? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. It is a needle in the eye. And Which these days, intense. yeah, it, it's less so now, but it's not, not intense. And I just got one the other day. I get them. Now I'm on a schedule with them. And so I get them every six to 10 weeks. And Which is often to some degree. I mean, you know, yeah. To some degree, yeah. For this this treatment, which is not um, not still an off-label treatment, even though they've been doing it for 15 years now, is um, really common now. And it's, but it's mostly common for older folks who have, um, for the most part, age-related macular degeneration. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, now, now I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, my grandpa gets those, my aunt gets those, etc. You know, it's it, when I started getting these 15 years ago, that wasn't, um, no one had heard of it. No one knew anyone else who had gotten them. They were still very, very new. And, um, and so a lot of things were different than the needle they used was bigger. The, um, the prep time for it, they treated it more like a minor surgery than just a quick injection. Now it's just, it's, very very quick and um is it painful it's it's not um it's definitely strange getting one but it's not um and it used to be a lot more pressure especially when they used a bigger needle for it but um but it can't be painful afterwards i mean the last couple i've gotten have been uh, maybe few actually have been really painful after. So I just, I can't really plan anything after getting one. And basically now I'm just kind of like the day is shot and I'll make a to-do list. You know, usually I get them in the late morning or early afternoon or something. And I'll, uh, in part because I want to get as much done before <laughs> I get an injection. And then, um, and then once all the, the, the numbing substances, they put a lot of different, um, local anesthetics, both drops and gels and various things. Uh, once all of that has worn off, Sometimes it's quite painful. Sometimes the eye gets, it's probably like a, a corneal abrasion or something that happens or something like it in the process. And, um, and it's like, you know, it's, if, if you've ever scratched your eye, you, you know how kind of all consuming that can be where, you know, you're, you're, um, your tear ducts go into uh it's just like flood constantly flooding your eyes so you're just kind of um you know, you're just crying <laughs> basically and um and 
just have to wait it out. And so that happens sometimes. Um, but I've also had plenty of injections where I, it's, it's been, it's felt like hardly anything happened at all. And it's, so it's really kind of a crapshoot. Um, but yeah. And so I used to, to be a little more, uh, flippant about it for a while once I'd been doing it for a number of years and um and they it seemed like they had gotten easier but now I'm I'm back to the place where I'm like yeah I can't I can't schedule anything major afterwards I can I can make my to-do list and hopefully I get some of it done after my injection but maybe maybe I'm just too caught up in the after effects to really really right. be able to to get much done i mean the book you know it's about it's about your condition but it's also about kind of i, I guess eyesight contemporary eyesight in general and also i mean it's about betty davis it's about kind of mr magoo it's about crying i mean there's a lot of interesting kind of parts um throughout it's about animals it's about your eye violence movie night, your whole movie night, movie night yeah. series based around eye violence, which is dark. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. one terrible time <laughs> like midway through uh, you. Right. We live in an ocular centric culture, one that prioritizes sight over all other senses. And as technology moves forward, adding screen upon screen, visions, rain spreads. It's the sense we give the bulk of our responsibilities to and work the hardest to please. Sight has, in effect, moved up the social ladder from nobility to royalty. Which, I mean, I guess for people who have, I mean, I don't have perfect vision myself. I have contacts, but like, it's just an interesting way to think about kind of how different senses have different kind of tiers, which I think is totally true, and how sight, you know, it is such a kind of omnipresent thing that for, you know, able-bodied folks, like they just take for granted. Um, and I don't know, was it interesting, like navigating this material and researching it as you yourself kind of experienced what it's like to not kind of have perfect vision or not kind of, you know, just, just take things for granted? Yeah, it definitely was. And and that's in part how I was convinced this was a book where maybe 10 years ago I wrote, I wrote an essay about, about my, my eye condition, my condition. And, and I just thought that was it, right? It was the, the one essay I had to write and it was a braided essay that mixed in history and various things so it was, it was almost like a template for this book right where it's it it was it was in some ways more personal than anything i'd done previously and then um also more research heavy and so but i wrote the essay and um yeah i got it got published in a chapbook anthology and I was like, great, it's out there. It's, 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 a, it's over. I don't have to write about that again. And, um, 
and then it came back around you know like i i ended up writing about it a couple more times a few years later um and and i had a few friends and mentors be like hey this could be a book and but i felt and i don't i don't think this was necessarily true for everyone, but there were some people really pushing me for it to be a memoir, pure memoir. And yeah. I, I was like, it's not that right. You know, and, and in part, it's just, to me, it's, it's not like, like of the, the now existing book. That's to me, that's, the least interesting part <laughs> is is my the, my eye condition as memoir but i i'm I, i'm not i'm not upset that it's in there i think it is what it, the glue that holds everything together but your I experience think, is yeah yeah, yeah, it's it's which the is thing. in there, but it's not the totality of it. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of other culture. I mean, the 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 notes or the acknowledgments, like you know, it's detailed, selected bibliography, and even the selected here is a a, a lot, a lot. You know, it's kind it's of long. Yeah, long. there's <laughs> right. more on your website. Yeah, 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 uh, and and so I I already knew that in some ways that was the least interesting part of the essays I'd been writing about it, which were just a couple at that time. And, um, but then a couple people were like, Hey, think about it more thematically. What kind of like you're doing in these, these then early essays where it's like, what are the things that you think about? that maybe other sighted people don't. And um, it really convinced me that it was the in-betweenness that was interesting, that I, I, that there's still the potential that I, that all, you know, my, my vision has gotten worse. Um, and so- It has gotten worse, you said? It has gotten worse over the years. There's there's yeah. scar tissue that builds up from the hemorrhages, and um, and right now, yeah, I have one eye that's a lot better than the other, and it compensates. And so, um, but if that if that stopped being the case, then you know I, I'd need to stop driving at some point. Um, like already, I limit. Like I mentioned, I limit how much I drive at night anymore because my vision's not as good and um and yeah but i so there is the potential that someday i might be blind or more low vision than i currently am but i'm still sighted and um you know and um and yeah but the, the fact that during some of the hemorrhages that I've, uh, especially the early ones that took a lot longer to get um, care for, that um, that I've 
lost a lot of vision during the hemorrhaging process or, you know, temporary loss of vision during that process. So I've also seen a glimpse, had, had some glimpses of what it could be to um, at least be fairly low vision. And so people were like, well, this, that's, that in-betweenness is, is interesting and it has obviously made you think about things or at least notice things in a way that other people don't or don't have to, you know, well, maybe that's the book. And then as soon as, as soon as they said that, then I was sort of just flooded with ideas and I just made a list of all, all the different things I, I, I think about or the different ways that I see us as humans or uh, especially sighted humans relating to the eyes and um, mm-hmm. and not all of those things made the cut but a lot of those are ended up being essays in the collection and so it was it was really I I have been saying it's been a book from the beginning um, but it was which isn't completely true, but it is. Um, it, it really feels is. like a holistic book. It doesn't good, feel good. like, you know, I mean, that these are, it, it very much feels like a product unto itself. That, that's really good to hear because, yeah, I, that's how I was treating it. I mean, it was an interesting thing because I'm really, as as someone who really loves the literary essay as a form and as a a history i i get pretty dedicated to the the idea or ideal of the essay where it's like you don't know where you're going to end up because it's the mind at work on the page going in with a set you can know some things that you want to say. Oh, that's very helpful, right? And some maybe even arguments that you want to make. But I always want to land somewhere that surprises me. So some of these endings are maybe a little strange as endings or not not neatly tied up. And in some cases, that's the book form of the essay rather than the the previously published literary journal form of the mm-hmm. essay, right? You know, that that some things just didn't need to be as tied up because they were going elsewhere. But, and also, you know, I just like, that's how I feel an ending and an essay is when you get to this place and it surprises you as the writer. And I want to be surprised. I want to surprise myself on the page. I... You know, I don't want to end up in a space in that at an ending or landing place that feels predictable that I knew was coming. And so, and it's oftentimes when I challenge my previously held belief a little bit and then I'm like, oh, I've, I've gotten to, if not to an ending, at least close to an ending. And so, and sometimes the surprise is in the prose itself where it gets a little, a little weird at the end or it switches 
um, from the past tense to the present tense for for a final scene and you know something like that where it's like where I didn't know I was going to do that and then it just felt natural to go there and it felt like the right thing to do and so um, so on one hand I wanted I treated and want to treat every essay as its own encapsulated experience right where it's like want a reader to enter an essay and not know where they're going to end up. And so there's that, but in it's, it was kind of holding these two values, right? Where it's like, I want that experience. I want to create that experience. And at all times, I'm remembering that this is part of the book and mm-hmm. that this, that this is going to be in conversation with all of these other things I've written and have yet to write. And so there was always these two mindsets where I wanted to be fully in the world of the essay so that in the end product, the essays are very different from each other oftentimes where they're operating differently. They're, um, they're a different style of essay. One might be a braided essay. One might be a collage style fragmented essay, you know, there's interviews with people. There's interviews who, that, like, that have, yeah. have cited. Well, yeah, different interviews of like Andrew Leland, who has a new book mm-hmm. out about, yeah, different, yeah. Yeah. New, new yeah. book out about blindness or possibly going blind. Like, yeah, The Country of the Blind. Yeah. Great book. I mean, I think the, you know, the power of the book is it's, it, it's called Staring Contest Essays About Eyes. And I mean, it's your eyes take you know, they're, they, they definitely focus on your eyes and your condition, but there's, it's like really about, it's not an essays about my eyes. Like it really goes all over the place. I mean, so many interesting, like typewriters were initially created for, for blind folks. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting how the eyes, they show us our interior health. So if you like drank a lot the night before your eyes are bloodshot, just things that sometimes I guess, I don't know. It's interesting because it's an essay collection all about one subject, but it's made clear by really digging deep into that subject, how kind of all encompassing that subject is and goes beyond itself, you know, which is hard to do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many things that are left out too by its nature because it's such a broad, such a broad uh, topic or, you know, yeah, because because we we do live in an ocular centric culture. It's no, it's, it's very so true. true. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's something that people take for granted, including myself. You know, yeah, like, and yeah. It, your your book kind of is a wake up call. I I've even even after writing the book, I have to make myself notice that sometimes when when vision is being fully fully prioritized in various situations where there isn't really a, another element and um yeah because it's we do take it for granted and and if you're sighted it just seems natural to to do that and um yeah but also i i think even for people who are sighted it's it's um it's interesting uh, at at the very least to push against that a little bit and 
try to, again, at the least, have a more um, rounded experience with the senses, right? Where, um, you know, experience the, they're all different ways of experiencing the world and, um, and in concert or together they're, they're, that's an, another version of experiencing the world. And so if we are always prioritizing vision, we're having a sort of limited existence, right? Or, or limited experience of the world. Yeah, it's something that it's a practice, right? You know, where it's not like, oh, I wrote down these things I learned along the way, and then they're just things that I incorporate into my life all the time now. But it's it's a practice to to be incorporating other senses to not be so ocular centric in my in the way that I live my life. Yeah. Well, so you have the book out. I mean, you had another, you have, you've been publishing a lot What and you're doing events. Um, what's, what's next on the horizon? I got an email today from Antiquated Future, which is the label and I guess press you run. What, what do you have coming up next? Yeah. Well, actually today, um, we're, when we're recording this, um, the label side of Antiquated Future has, um, a new album out from a Portland, Oregon indie rock band called Baby Tooth, uh, who I've really loved for years now, and it's their first full length. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, um, really an honor to get to release it because, um, yeah. I've just been fans for so long. And so you have that in a release party um, tonight. And so I'll be in, be wearing my, my label hat tonight. And, uh, and, and yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's as, as far as my mind is going right now, you know, where it's like, that's, that's the thing I have to do. And, um, and there's not that much required of me tonight other than showing up really. But, um, but you'd have been sending promo emails all morning before this and things like that. And, um, yeah. And then, um, yeah, I'm doing some, some East coast, events around the book in um, early mid-September which might this might come out after it so so maybe that that's uh that'll be firmly in the past by the time anyone's listening to this but um yeah and uh in a couple Portland events this fall a multimedia event at um, the Open Signal um media arts space here in Portland um on October 1st and um, be doing a pop-up reading at the Portland Book Festival this November. And um, so, yeah, but those, I think that's the rest of the book events that are currently planned. Um, And yeah, yeah. And then I, I think just, I've been caught up because I had a novel 
come out last fall. Um, that and then immediately after that coming out, I had to finish edits for this for for staring contest, and so it's really been by the time all was said and done and it was at the the printer this um late winter early spring i was i'd been in more an editing mode than a generative mode for what felt like a long time well over a year and um so I just, I hadn't had the brain space to think about what was next or try to come up with something new. And, but as soon as it was funny, as soon as I turned in the manuscript or, you know, signed off on that, the final proof before it went to print, I, within a week, had an idea for both a fiction and a nonfiction project just right off it without really even I was like I guess those were in there somewhere and I just wasn't letting myself access them because I knew I couldn't do anything about them and yes so whenever whenever things slow down I'm I'm hoping to put some space into that um yeah yeah what one the nonfiction project is less personal and more research or interview based so it it's one that i'm just more like outlining i usually don't outline at the beginning of a project but i think because this one's less it i don't want to say less creative but less in lesson uh not not as not as i'm reading reading it more like a a a kind of research project right now than a than than a creative project i guess and so um so that one i'm just i'm sort of outlining and um doing a little bit of planning on but i i'm working on a a novel i'm gonna just call it a short novel i'm like trying to write a short novel maybe like a 200 page book you know that something that's that's not a little longer than a novella but not you know not um a full what we think of as a full-length novel i just love the short novel and um i so i just I, i feel like it's if I put the constraint on it now, maybe I can actually do it. And, but I've been writing it and it's been interesting and it's not, um, I don't know if you have this, but every time I start a new project, there's a part of me that's like, this is nothing like anything else I've ever written. And then when you get a little bit, a little bit into it, you're like, this is exactly like everything I've written. You know, this is this is basically just a different version of everything I've done before. So I'm having a little bit of both of those feelings right now where it's going places where I didn't 
expect it to go and it just feels a little different has almost a sort of um one potentially almost magical element to it which i don't normally throw into my fiction and wouldn't have planned but it just kind of came out of the writing and i'm interested in it and uh yeah yeah so um i think that's that's where i'm at right now yeah all right that was jeff ellis and Jerry's conversation with joshua james amberson you can get a copy of staring contest essays about eyes from perfect day publishing and you can check out Jeff's books and both of his presses, Phonograph Editions and the imprint Bunny Press online at phonographeditions.com and Bunny Press, that's press with an E, dot org. And you can check out all our books too at autofocuslit.com slash books. And that's also where you can find that t-shirt I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. You can get that. Maybe throw some books in there. It's a great way to support the podcast. And if you're still here, maybe you'd like the show. And you'd rate it on whatever app you're using. That'd be mighty cool of you. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.